0: My message is to speak up when you see injustice happening in front of you whether it's in person or online it's we should feel it's our duty to support the oppressed and, and shut it down
1: This is a podcast called Walk Talk Listen an attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true albeit partial my name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk Talk. Day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk Talk Listen. And as always, I'm delighted with today's guest who will introduce herself. Warda, please go ahead.
0: Thanks, Maurice, for having me. Um, it's good to be here with you all. So, my name is Warda Khaled. I wear a lot of different hats. I'm a policy advisor, activist, career coach, speaker, and nonprofit founder. And I'm really passionate about improving international affairs and uplifting marginalized communities to step into their power so my background is in refugees foreign policy um civic engagement and accounting as well
1: mm-hmm. and, and tell us did it, you know when did that happen that passion for you know, working in this uh, in all these areas was there a moment in in your life where you thought okay this is what i'm going to do or
0: uh, you know, it kind of built up gradually. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know, I think as a kid, what I wanted to do. I was thinking about maybe being a teacher. But I really enjoyed my high school government class. That was my mm-hmm. favorite class, my government AP class. And I thought, wow, it would be so cool to go to D.C. and work in policy. And I think around that time, Madeleine Albright was Secretary of State, mm-hmm. which I thought was really cool because she was a woman. Um, and so it just kind of put a little nugget in my head of wanting to perhaps work at the U.N. or be in D.C., Uh, But I didn't really know how to get there. So I ended up pursuing accounting in graduate school, got my CPA license and practiced um, as a corporate tax accountant before switching Mm. over. And the way I got into international affairs and politics was through civic engagement, which I participated in while I was living in Houston. So um, I was a religion blogger for the Houston Chronicle, where I kind of wrote about my experiences growing up as a Muslim in Texas. There was a lot of Islamophobia at the time. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were happening and President Obama was also facing a lot of heat for potentially being a Muslim or an Arab as if that was a bad thing. So all of these things combined helped me realize that, you know, I wanted to move this passion that I had for, you know, redefining the narrative of our community, redefining my own narrative and working to secure the rights of marginalized people in the U.S. and abroad. Um, and so that helped me make the transition over to international affairs um, and civil rights and civic engagement, and so it kind of just built from there.
1: Wow, and and what I'm interested in to to understand what is that, you know, uh, unfortunately many like you um, but experiencing you know discrimination and and um, saw you know saw that happening on on, on television and media etc. But not all of, uh, you know, all of them would start writing in blogs about it. So did you have a an example there of a person that you inspired to start doing that? Or was it all, you know, by your own? Okay, this is, I feel that I need to do this.
0: So writing for me is a very kind of therapeutic process and allows mm-hmm. me to really, um, Get down my thoughts in a very clear way and kind of get it out of my system, what I'm feeling. So, I actually began writing in high school. I was on the newspaper staff my senior year of high school. And then I continued writing in college. I was a news writer for one semester and then an opinion columnist for three years. And I loved opinion writing because it was a way to put my perspective out there for everybody to read. And then they could tell me if they agreed with it or disagreed with it, which was also kind of fun to hear. Um so when I graduated from college and that was around the time Islamophobia started ra- ramping up and President Obama had gotten elected it was my way it was like okay I have this writing skill and I see that the Houston Chronicle which is you know the fourth largest city in America has this religion blog where they seem to let everyday people write mm-hmm. how can I you know continue my writing but now focus more on a faith perspective based on my own experience because it really seems like people don't understand or don't know what the real experience of American Muslims are. They just hear what they hear on the news or in the media or by politicians and pundits. And how can I bridge that gap that people seemingly have created between Islam and America, which I was living both worlds. So Mm -hmm. I didn't see any difference in that. And so it was a way of making, it was a way of redefining the narrative and also empowering myself and hopefully others to recognize what they read in that blog and, and feel um, proud of their identity.
1: You worked for a, a couple of NGOs, right? And and then a few years ago, um, you started your own. So, so tell yes. us about that. How how did that happen? And and why? And what is your organization trying to do?
0: Yeah. So. When I first got to DC, I started working at this Quaker lobby called the Friends Committee on National Legislation, and I was a, a middle. I was doing Middle East policy there, and I really loved how they utilized their faith values to try to make a world a better place, specifically through policy and congressional policy. Although they also worked with the White House as well. And I re, even before I started working there, I remember researching them on their website and learning more about them. Because I was doing a fellowship, so I got to choose or decide between which organizations I wanted to work with. And the reason why I really liked them was because they seemed to have similar faith values as me, but also they were utilizing it to be very active and to make the world a better place. They were, um, they had been doing lobbying, I think, for like 70 years or so. And so they were well established. They were doing it through their churches, which they call meeting houses, and they were having a significant impact. They were well known on Capitol Hill and people knew they were pacifists and that they were trying to create peace and, 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 and harmony. So I loved that idea and I wanted to bring it to my own community because the Quakers are less than 70,000 people in the U.S., but they have immense lobbying power um, and educational power on Capitol Hill. And I was thinking, why does my community of three to eight million people in the U.S. not have that same power? Um, we need to get organized and tap into that. So that's really what Polygon does. Um, you know, I did kind of the groundwork. I did a lot of research about why such an organization hadn't been created in the first place, and then put a team of people together to help bring that vision to life. And we really focus on three things: training, education, and direct advocacy on the hill that we can do as part of a five five hundred one c three. And mm-hmm. it's been great. We are now in our fifth sixth year. We launched in January of yeah. twenty seventeen, and. We just brought on our first full-time executive director, which is a really exciting step for us. And hopefully this means we can continue to grow. We've trained over 11,000 people in the U S and across the world on how to advocate with your member of Congress, whether it's through a phone call, a town hall meeting or an office visit um, and provided a lot of really helpful educational resources for the community. So um, I'm really excited to see how far it, it goes and Hopefully it becomes very natural for our community to not only vote, which we now we're getting really good at also how to hold your member of Congress or your elected official accountable after you vote for them at the ballot box.
1: And, and I, I just want to make sure that um, I will put a, a link to your, uh, the website of your organization in the podcast notes. Um, but maybe it's good to repeat it here to make sure that yeah. people get it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's, called Polygon, which is spelled P-O-L-I-G-O-N, like the shape. Um, and the website is polygonnational.org. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Polygon National, and the Facebook page is Facebook.com slash Polygon Education Fund.
1: Is, is it your organization is it focused only on the muslim population or is it you know going beyond that uh can anybody so join the tagline
0: is yeah it's muslims and allies so okay. um i think our first or second training that we did was um not for a muslim group it was kind of a group of young uh, young people that were from maryland of all different faith backgrounds and we've also done it with professional groups um so we, While we focus on the Muslim community, it's open to anybody to participate in the trainings and sign up for the mailing list and get educated. We have a great newsletter that goes out on Friday that is called Hill Happenings, and it tells people very briefly what what happened that week on Capitol Hill, and I think anybody of any community can benefit from that kind of information.
1: Right. Hey, and well, I, I you know, you're so active, you're doing so many different things, but you know, but the this organization is not the only thing you do. Can you you maybe share a little bit, you know, what else you do? Um,
0: So my day job is I currently work at the Department of Health and Human Services at the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Mm. And I've been there for a little over a year and I work on Afghan family reunification. Um, It's been really, really fulfilling work. And I get to work with Church World Service and all these other organizations that are in the refugee space, um, as well as the State Department, Congress. So it's been a nice amalgamation of kind of all of the different things that I've done in my career. Um, but aside from that, um, I still do some consulting work. Um, I work with Islamic Scholarship Fund and help institutionalize their congressional internship and fellowship program to, to place Muslim fellows and interns on Capitol Hill, uh, which is really, really important in increasing representation and diversity on Capitol Hill. And that will hopefully lead to better policymaking. And then I also do career coaching. Um, uh, this is something that I'm very passionate about, especially uplifting marginalized communities who maybe don't know how to achieve the goals that they've set for themselves. Many of us, uh, are children of immigrants. And so these career paths, even the one that I'm pursuing now, I had to figure it out on my own. I had nobody to help me or tell me how to do it, what my resume needed to look like. Uh, what is, what kind of education did I need to have? So um, I love providing career coaching and I do workshops on media trainings and networking and salary negotiation to try to help people uh, really be their best and obtain their best and do their best um, with education. So I, I do that and then I'll do other speaking engagements as well. And um, yeah, we we met each other most recently where I was an MC at a, a refugee banquet. So i uh, keeping very busy, but I love all the different things that i do and i think that um i'm a pretty creative person when it comes to my interests and mm-hmm. how i want to make a difference in the world so i'm just really enjoying doing all that
1: <laughs> i i had to laugh but i was listening to you because i was like uh, do you have you know maybe share your secrets and how that you discovered that there are more hours in a day than 24
0: <laughs> <laughs> Um, Very efficient time management skills. And um, it really forces you to prioritize when you're doing a lot of things. You can't Mm -hmm. spend forever doing one thing because you've got other things that you want to get to too. But I also have really been intentional about balance, especially in these past couple of years. Mm -hmm. Even prior to COVID, right before COVID, I was really getting intentional about it because I was so aware of burnout. Um, And the one good thing about starting my career in corporate is we always heard the term work-life balance, even while we were in school. And so I was very aware of that, that, Hey, if I was working a lot and I did have times at Deloitte where I was working a lot, but as long as most of the time I had a balanced schedule and I could do other things that I really enjoyed outside of work, then that was a good thing. So I've always kind of had that mentality where like, yes, there's always endless work to do, but at what point are you sacrificing your health and you're not going to have any joy out of what you're doing either. So it's all about balance and it's still a work in progress. Um, but yeah, I'm making it work. Uh, and as long as I'm enjoying it, I'm happy.
1: Um, you're talking about, um, you know, finding a good balance, uh, walking helps me and, and, um, yeah, a couple of years ago, um, I started to to do a hundred mile walk. So it means you know fifteen to twenty miles uh, per day um, to reach that hundred mile. And I I I did that to to raise awareness about uh, ending hunger, poverty, and injustice. Also raise some money. Um, and you know the reason that that uh, I started this podcast is because I. Yeah, when, when COVID happened, I was not able to be joined by other people. So I thought, okay, maybe I can walk virtually with, with folks. I'm walking virtually today with you. Um, <laughs> if, if you would be asked to walk 100 miles in a week uh, for the course, for which course would that be and why?
0: So I would say anything justice related. Justice mm-hmm. is really what drives me. It's a big part of my faith you know, religion or Islam is all about justice. And so whether that's spiritual justice or physical justice, that really is what would compel me to walk. Um, There's a verse in the Quran, this is in in, um, chapter four, which is Surah Nisa, which says, stand up firmly for justice as a witness to God, even against yourselves or your parents or your kin, whether it be against rich or poor. So I, I, that just shows how important it is in my faith so whether and there's so many different causes that can follow with injustice right whether that's black lives matter or poverty or islamophobia or any of those causes um any place that there is an injustice that is really what compels me to take action and in this case walk right.
1: um you know when when i walk with with uh, my, my guests and uh, you know, you start talking about, about uh, life. I mean, it's well, because basically, I to, after a couple of miles, my, you know, often is one reason why are you doing this? Uh, <laughs> because it's really tiresome. Um, but then we'd also talk about, you know, religion, spirituality, um, because there is something, you know, walking with, with that um, as well, um, something that's difficult to yeah to get to i mean in terms of yeah walking in life etc cetera, etc cetera. um but then when we talk about spirituality and religion um we often talk about in you know, what's happening with the youth are they experiencing religion differently um i think especially in in the in the in the christian uh churches you know you see the number of uh, younger generation going down um Does that mean that they are less religious uh, or they, yes, they are less religious, but you're still spiritual. Um, Anyway, my my question to you is what, what do you see among, you know, youth in your community uh, happening around religion and spirituality? Is that the same difference? You know, what, yeah. Can you share some observations from your side?
0: Yeah, it's a mixed bag. I would say, I think that You know, maybe earlier in earlier generations, religion in the U.S., or at least Muslims in the U.S. were very focused on kind of like, let's break bread with others and let's have kind of interfaith gatherings to get to know each other. And that's important. And I I did that, too, when I was a religion blogger in Houston. But what I'm noticing is young people are kind of moving beyond that now. They're moving now to like, what can we actually accomplish together based on our shared values versus just... You know, moving from tolerance to friendship to understanding, what can we actually do together? So I'm seeing a lot of young people um, get really involved in civic engagement and advocacy with their faith communities or with other faith communities. You know, I was a Muslim working at a Quaker lobby. I still see other Muslims that show up to their Hill days um, because, Mm -hmm. well, there's not a Muslim lobby yet uh, that they can advocate with all the time, uh, but also because they have aligned faith values. So Mm I think that that's a really um, inspiring uh, thing that's happening because we are stronger together in the U.S. because we are such uh, different people from different backgrounds, but we can get together on one thing. But at the same time, I also kind of uh, relate to what you're talking about where there are some young people who seem to be having sort of like an identity crisis because of the pressures of quote-unquote Western values or the urge to kind of conform and, and blend in with uh, the American population in general. Um, but then I also see young people that are wearing their identities very proudly and are, are so confident, way more confident than I was as a kid where there's, you know, Muslim hijabi TikTok stars and Olympic athletes and tech geniuses and activists. Mm. Um, and it's, it's very inspiring and, and it's growing. So I'm hopeful that people um, feel strong in a, in their identity but you know there's no one-size-fits-all for youth for sure
1: wow I mean from you to hear that they were more fearless than you were I mean it's like <laughs> they, they, must, they must be superheroes super that it's, yeah uh, okay that, that's great hey and, and what I wanted to ask you because I somebody sent me an article uh, I think it was published recently in NPR um, you know mentioning that Um, you know because especially the younger generation but not only um we're not interested anymore in the church but we're still interested in you know more the action related Mm -hmm. with values um you know some churches really abolished the church and started to have you know working on home gardens where you know they meet and yes they you know they might have a prayer but then they go into action um is that something that you're seeing as well on the Muslim in within the Muslim community, or is this more a Christian uh, development?
0: Um, no, I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, I'm thinking right now about my sister. She volunteers at the local mosque, and they just mm-hmm. had this sisters' hot cocoa social activity where mm-hmm. I'm sure they had some sort of religious talk as part of it, but it was really just about getting together and, and like building community bonds. And they have. Like bake sales that they do and they do um, like uh, other youth kind of activities that they work and work together for the community. And so I think it is a trend in our, in our community as well. We, there's definitely tons of religious material out there. If you want to look for it, whether it's going to the prayers in the mosque or Friday prayer, where there's a sermon or taking an Islamic class on the weekends or something Um, but then for people who are more action oriented and want to do things, there's that for them too. And I hope that more mosques and Islamic community centers create these youth groups and young professional groups to get them more active in their community while they can also have this background of the religion that kind of ties everybody together and reminds them of why they're doing what they do. So it's, it's definitely evolved a long way. Um, I think since I was a kid and I, even when I was young, um, we didn't have, like, I didn't know of any like Muslim youth camps or anything like that where now they're so active. And later after I graduated from college, I became a camp counselor for them when they finally mm. started those programs back up. And it was really fun for me. And then now I see that same organization doing kind of like get out the vote, uh, you know, emails yeah. and mobilizing young people that way. And I spoke at one of their conferences. So it's really cool how they're tying the two together.
1: Yeah, I, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm overall and absolutely positive, but there are also things that I worry about. Um, you know, are there things that you worry about? And if so, what what are those?
0: Yeah, so when it comes to Islam in America, I definitely still worry about the same issues that kind of propelled me on this path, which is Islamophobia and how it's still not being taken seriously um, in some In many areas, whether it's by, you know, pundits or politicians that can say whatever they want about Islam and Muslims and don't, it doesn't matter what the consequences are, or whether it's, you know, maybe the the government not prioritizing it, whether it's, you know, the White House um, or other government bodies, like making sure that we're tracking Islamophobia and like really paying attention to it. Um, or, you know, Hollywood that keep, keeps coming out with movies that have like Islamophobic themes. I think American Sniper is one of them. I haven't watched it, but what I read on Twitter is when people would come out of the theater, they were like, oh, I want to shoot an Arab or I want to shoot a Muslim. Like it was a game for them that this movie apparently perpetuated. So that kind of stuff really worries me. And it's not just this anecdotal evidence, there is hard research that shows that Islamophobia is still rising and we really saw that happen, as I mentioned, after um, Obama was elected and then also during um, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and then most recently with with the Trump administration. Um, So there was a survey that Muslim Community Network, which is this nonprofit out in New York, did in 2022 showing that out of the 200 people that they surveyed, Muslims that they surveyed, nearly half of them had been victims of a hate crime. Um, so it, it's so still prevalent. And, you know, these are just people that are reporting it. There's probably many people who are not or didn't even fill out the survey. Mm-hmm. Um, they also said that 43% of Muslims between 10 and 18 years old reported experiencing or witnessing a hate crime back in 2019. And over 75% of the Muslims that they surveyed reported witnessing a hate crime. So it's very prevalent out there. And I, I'm just worried that it's not being paid attention to enough. And so I'm hoping with this increase in political engagement and redefining our narrative in the media and really organizing together with other faith communities that we can start to overcome this. I mean, we have started to overcome it, but even move further um, and that, you know, organizations like my nonprofit Polygon are, are teaching people how to hold the representatives accountable. So they can't pass these sorts of policies that vilify Muslims or say these things in a public sphere anymore it's about holding people accountable and then you know i talked about gen z also giving hope in that whether out there voting and organizing so um i'm hopeful but it's also worrying to see that this is still happening
1: a little bit continuing on 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 the word what are some of the things, you know, that are also happening that continue to give you hope? Can you uh, give some concrete examples?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, there's there are ways that um, we've seen faith communities come together to counter Islamophobia. And I've loved that. You know, sometimes when there are hate crimes or attack on a mosque, a lot of times it's the churches or the synagogues that come and show solidarity which is really important because our community does the same when there's a church or synagogue attacked because, you know, religious bigotry does not uh, care which religion it is that they'll go after any religion. So that really gives me hope of seeing the interfaith community come together. And I think that is a result of all the bridge building that we've done over the past many, many decades, especially after Um, 9-11. There was a lot of people that thankfully came together after that to show that, Hey, you know, Islam is not the issue here. It's not the problem. And we really value our Muslim neighbors. So, um, that the interfaith work really inspires me, you know, seeing, um, initiatives, uh, by, you know, whether it's state, local, or city government, whether it's like resolutions passing, honoring, uh, like today is like a Muslim day or Islam day, or they'll do a Muhammad Ali day or something where they're, honoring some some sort of personality or uh, the religion Um, and then seeing like Eid really celebrated which is the holiday that we celebrate after Ramadan and then after the Hajj and people sharing their stories uh, in in schools like moms reading Islamic books to the kids to teach about their faith traditions so there's a lot of work being done at the local level which is really exciting um, and inspiring and hopefully combating this, but it's it's definitely an uphill battle that I think is going to take uh, quite a bit more time.
1: If you look at at uh, the NGO sector as a whole, um, yeah, how do you see? And I know it's difficult to, you know, it's not impossible to kind of talk about the whole sector because it's a very diverse sector. But if you look at I'm going to ask the question anyway. So if you look at the NGO sector as a whole, um how do you think that NGO sector did in terms of you know fighting racial injustice and uh you know what did it do well and what to should do better? Can you share some thoughts?
0: Yeah I think it was a mixed bag like many other sectors. Mm-hmm. Um you know there were some things that were positive, some things that could be improved on. And like you mentioned, with the George Floyd murder, Black Lives Matter was a huge, very public wake-up call for a lot of sectors. And they put out statements and pledges, which is great, but actions talk, right? So Mm -hmm. one question that a lot of activists were asking, including myself, after um, Black Lives Matter and all these statements came out was, you know, who sits on your board? Do you have a diverse board that is leading your organization who are you hiring? What is the diversity of the staff that you're hiring? You can make statements and pledges, but if your actual organization doesn't reflect the diversity, then you are part of the problem. you're you're not you're not helping and creating a solution. So I think that was one thing that I noticed a lot about not only the NGO sector but sector but also the corporate sector and others that actually have more resources often than NGOs. Uh, all of there are some very large NGOs that have have a lot of resources and can make that sort of change. I saw a lot of you know diversity, equity, and inclusion training, which sometimes it was good in organizations and taken seriously and actually implemented. While other times it was just kind of a check the box thing, where it's like, okay, yeah, we have a DEI officer, or we 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 all went through a training, we're all good now. Um, and I think it takes a lot of courage to have people at your organization take racial bias trainings um, and really <laughs> look internally and, and do the work to see, hey, what what do people here at the organization think? What are we doing to improve the situation? And it also showed that everything is kind of interconnected, right? So racial injustice is tied to other forms of injustice. And um, we all play a role in either alleviating it or perpetuating it. And so I think it made people take. Uh, I hope it made people take a hard look at themselves and see what they could do better. Uh, but there's obviously still a lot of work to be done because it, it's not gone, right? It's still mm. very much there, and we still see stories almost every day of racial injustice or xenophobia or bigotry. And so uh, we have we have a long way to go. But it's like I said, actions talk. It, it's good that people made statements and are doing mm. words, but actions uh, actions really matter
1: yeah and and when i was li- uh, listening to you I, uh, I was thinking um you know maybe another way of saying is you know maybe you know some of those actions were working on certain symptoms but we really yeah. need to look at the root causes and and for me uh what is that as, as a world, we identified the sustainable development goals. And I, I think, it's, you know, mm-hmm. those goals are not perfect, but at least it's an attempt to look at the root causes of the issues. Um, so I have a question to you um about sustainable development goals. Would you like the listeners to know about the sustainable development goals? So that's my first part of the question. And the second part is we haven't made a lot of progress on the sustainable development goals we are not on the right track especially the last two years we have kind of you know we are at a standstill and some people have been saying well one of the reasons that we are not on the right track is that we did not properly pay attention to the ability skills and and um, knowledge that you need as individual and as community to work on these sustainable development goals and therefore uh, they developed the inner development goals. So there are five inner development goals, being, uh, thinking, relating, uh, collaborating, and action. So the second part of my question is, um, yeah, any any thoughts on, on those inner development goals? So two two parts. One is what do you yeah,
0: so like them for to the know system, the SDGs? Yeah. yeah, so for the SDGs, um, I actually first got exposed to them when I was in grad school, living in New York, and I interned at the OIC mission. And I was tracking how member states, the OIC mission is the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. So it's uh, a lot of the Muslim majority states in the world or the countries in the world. And we were tracking how well they were doing on achieving the sustainable development goals. Because I think at that time, it was by 2015, I think was the deadline that they were supposed to reach it. And now I saw that it's 2030. And, like you said, a lot of the countries are not meeting them yet, and the goals are things that, for me personally, when I look at them, I think of them as basic human rights, you know, having clean drinking water and having safety and um, you know, having proper access to nutrition. These are things should be basic human rights, but they're not, hence, the need for the goals, and that's not the reality uh, of the of the situation on the ground. And you know, it's a very complex reasoning why things are the way they are right you've got maybe corrupt governments or lack of natural resources or as you mentioned a pandemic and or you know crop failures or things that are stopping issues but i still think it's worth having them because it's a goal to aspire to um, and you can't make progress unless you know what you're making progress toward right so it's a goal to aspire to but I think it will require perhaps more cooperation between countries um, and member states of the United Nations because maybe a country can't achieve all the goals on their own and, and they need some resource assistance. And so I hope that there's more collaboration in, in the future. Um, but having said that, we're all work in progress. There is poverty and hunger in the U.S. as well. So it's not like we can say that, oh, we're we're perfect or anything like that. As far as the inner development goals, I actually hadn't heard about this Um Uh, But I looked it up and I think it makes a lot of sense and it's very much needed because personal development is so critical um, to improving societies and to functioning as better human beings. Right. But unless you have those basic human needs, met, which we were talking about, for instance, in the sustainable development goals, you can't really focus on that. Right. It's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs where you have to have your basic human needs fulfilled first, water, food, shelter safety. Um, and then you can work on personal development and personal development is a passion of mine. Obviously I'm a career coach. And then I also have done like my own personal, uh, emotional intelligence trainings and things like that, uh, to try to become the best version of myself. So I think it's really inspiring for, uh, you know, having a movement, uh, called internet development goals to do that because I think it can only help improve our society.
1: what I hope I will be able to uh, achieve with this podcast is to connect people because I really think, you know, if you are able to connect people, they may be starting a conversation and a conversation is is a first necessary step in dialogue and then ultimately, you know, more understanding, hopefully peace. Um, Therefore, I'm going to connect you with my previous guest who had a question for you. My question would be, you know, what are some of the, the spiritual practices, maybe it's walking 100 miles, but what are some of the spiritual practices that they have found to be the most regenerative and the most transformational uh, for their for their own kind of life and activism and, and vocational
0: pursuits? My answer to that is taking faith inspired action. So that's kind of been a running theme in my. Career journey and personal life. So whether it was writing my religion blog or participating in interfaith dialogue dinners or working at faith-based NGOs that aligned with my values or starting my own NGO, these all channeled my faith in a very active and community-oriented way that I find very, very energizing. I'm very much an activist. I like doing things. I'm not, I will t- talk and I will write as needed to communicate, but I really like to be on the ground. Uh, walking or doing these different activities to say um, to be able to accomplish these things, and so that's very much a spiritual practice for me. Is spirituality in action?
1: And what is your question for the next guest?
0: So my question is: What advice would you give to your younger self when it comes to these topics? You know, whether it's spiritual practices or um, thinking about community or the world around you what advice would you give to your younger self knowing what you know now of the state of the world
1: cool cool question Uh, about a, a music is very is important to me uh, not only listening but trying to make some music myself as well so a question that I always ask to my guests is if I ask you to come up with a piece of music or a song that best embodies who you, what you are about uh, which song or piece of music would that be and why
0: so one song that I really like is called A Million Dreams from The Greatest Showman Um, it's a movie. I'm sure you heard it. It's a very popular song, but it talks about having a million dreams. And I feel like I'm very much a dreamer because I am a, an optimist. I'm a realistic optimist, but I'm, I am an optimist. And I dream of a world where the Middle East and Muslim majority countries are viewed from a human rather than a military lens where refugees and immigrants are welcomed. Without prejudice. And our democracy actually functions as one where every single person has a voice and a vote that is heard, and where every American and person around the world is treated with justice, equality, and dignity, regardless of their background. And obviously, right now, this is not a reality (laughs) for everybody. And so that's why it's still a dream. And I have the courage to dream and Hope to achieve that, and you can't achieve without dreaming. So I think this song very much represents how I feel about the importance of dreams and dreams that actually do keep me up at night and that I'm excited about.
1: Yeah, and we will add that to um, a Spotify playlist uh, that we created, nice with all the the songs that uh, were yeah yeah picked by the, the guest. And then you really should check it out. It's really, I, I think I it's should, a lot of yeah. fun. It's hard rock, reggae, classical music, and now your <laughs> song will be added as well uh, as soon a as... Show,
0: it's like a show tune. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: but, you know, it's it, it's interesting. I like listening to it because it brings me back to the conversations that I had, and which I... Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've been great uh, for me. Yeah, such a... I've been so privileged with, uh, you know... That I was able to talk with so many different people with different backgrounds, different countries, and stuff. So um, yeah. yeah. So um, and yeah, if you go to Spotify and you search for hashtag uh, Walk Talk Listen, okay. you should be able to find that uh, playlist. There is also a link in the in the podcast notes uh, to that particular list.
0: Great, I'll check it out.
1: You know, the the last two years, a lot has happened. And that's uh, especially, but not only, but especially also due to COVID. Um, Yeah, what can you tell about what did they do to your organization? And Mm -hmm. what are some of the... And it's not over yet, unfortunately, but, you know. um, Yeah, are there lessons um, from from experiencing that? And uh, can you share those?
0: So for Polygon, it was barely a shift for us because we were already 100% remote. And I thought that was really fortunate for us because we didn't have to worry about office space or going into the office or anything like that. Um, And I think that it really showed us that remote work is the future and we were already in the future incidentally and not on purpose, but it was very cool. So we did shift our trainings to online, obviously versus in-person trainings. But um, it also allowed us to reach a lot more people that we maybe normally wouldn't if we were flying to all these different locations. So the future is definitely virtual, um, and that was something that we was kind of confirmed by uh, by the COVID pandemic. And you know, for me personally, doing my kind of career coaching and consulting work, I started a lot of that during COVID because now I had this opportunity to you know, not have to like meet with people and and travel. I could just turn on my zoom and meet with people around the country or around the world and help them online. Um, which was really cool because before we normally take meetings and coffees in person. And now it was just, you had access to a lot more people and quick, more quickly through this online kind of platform. So, um, and that was really exciting. And then also, you know, I started several positions just fully remote. I was consulting at Rethink Media doing uh, around 9 11 work by the 20th anniversary of 9 11 was coming up. That was a fully remote position I started. I started my job at HHS remote as well. We didn't go into the office till probably six months into my position. And even now we go twice a week. So it's a more of a hybrid structure. So I think it just shows that there's a lot of unknowns in life. You think that you know how life is gonna turn out and how it's gonna be, but that's not how it is all it is at all. And the people that do the best are the ones that are flexible and they roll with the punches and they strive to see the opportunity and the bright side and things. And so I think that with pandemic, a lot of us moved online and got connected that way. And I started creating these coaching reels on Instagram to teach people quick lessons and and mini videos about careers and how they could succeed and i i think pandemic was part of the push that i i needed to do that that i had been thinking about and it made um it gave me kind of a built-in audience that was looking for content like that because everybody had moved online so um yeah i think it was an exciting time it was a, a time of change but it also had some great things that came along with it and then also a lot of lessons learned and being more cautious about safety and health all you know while we're doing all this.
1: Yeah, where where will you go from here? I mean, you're doing so many things, but you know, where does Warda you know five to ten years from now?
0: So I I'm very open to where I will be five to ten years from now. Ideally, I would still be working in policy. And making an impact. That's really my goal is whatever place I need to be in order to make an impact and improve the world for the better is where I'll be happy. And I think it's important to have goals that are flexible like that because sometimes people don't really know what they want or they get stuck on like, okay, I have to go to this particular organization or this particular career path and they get stuck and really disheartened when it doesn't work out. I've had so many failures that have happened in my career trajectory that I thought this is where I needed to be and that's not where I ended up. Um, you know, and sometimes there's unplanned opportunities that you take and they become the best thing. I I did never thought I was going to work in refugee resettlement work and I ended up at Church World Service because while I was in grad school I had helped start this nonprofit called I Am Your Protector which uplifted stories about people unlike themselves. Again, it was an interfaith kind of thing. It was a Jewish woman that had started it and they focused a lot on refugee stories and uh, refugees protecting others. And the media work, again, that I volunteered and did on my own based on the media work I had taught myself with religion blogging and speaking. And that's how I ended up as a media relations manager at Church World Service. And I'm so glad I did that job. And that job helped me get my current job at Health and Human Services doing Afghan family reunification. So uh, my I'm always a very cognizant about being open. And as long as I can accomplish my mission in life, which is to make the world a better place and impact the world, and particularly if I can help vulnerable populations, um, I, I'll i be happy. So I hope to be in a position of leadership somewhere, continuing doing policy and still doing you know all my fun stuff on the side for coaching and consulting and speaking, whatever I have capacity for at that point in my life. Um, and yeah, I'll... I'll yeah other dreams as well obviously i mean but you got to be got to be flexible i hope i think i'll still be in the dmv i really like being there
1: <laughs> <laughs> great hey these conversations always go fast so so my last question for you is you know do you have any last question message um a request um you know for the listeners
0: yeah my message is to speak up when you see injustice happening in front of you, whether it's in person or online, it's we should feel it's our duty to support the oppressed and, and shut it down. It's not only the right thing to do, but it's actually dangerous not to do anything because tomorrow it could be you in that situation. So, uh, And it's it's just important that we speak up. I think that especially when we are part of communities that have more access to people or Maybe you'll have somebody will listen to you because you are similar to them. Uh, We should all recognize our privilege and and speak up when we can to fight injustice because it's a community effort and it's not fair to only have certain activists doing it. Everybody in their own sphere of influence, whether it's their neighborhood or their church or their school or their mosque or their, uh, you know, uh, homeowners association or wherever it is that they live that is an opportunity to stand for justice uh, when it's time to do so. So don't underestimate the ability you have to impact change. You don't have to be in D.C. or New York working at these big organizations or the government to do so. You can definitely do it in your own sphere of influence. So make sure you speak up.
1: Well, thank you so much for your willingness to talk with me today. And thanks for sharing your, you know, your wisdom. Uh, Thank you for who you are. Um, unbelievable all the things that you do continue doing them but make sure you you know you keep the right balance thank you so much
0: (laughs) thank you so much for having me this was a pleasure and thank you for your podcast and all of the great conversations that you're having and sharing with the world so thank you thank you
1: This episode was made possible by the support of an organization called CWS. You want to be part of a movement? Well, sign up to become a sustaining partner. As a sustaining partner, you can make a difference in the world, automatically every month. Sustaining partners commit to a hopeful future by making compassion a part of their monthly budget. It could mean new systems to manage precious resources like water or diversified ways of earning a living that make people more resilient. For as little as $10 a month, You can transform lives. You want to check it out? Well, go to seriousglobal.org sustain. Thank you for listening to walk, talk, listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.